0: Welcome to the Wandering Bard Podcast. Thanks for joining me on the episode today. I know it's starting to be too long between episodes when even my friends who aren't that interested in folk music or traditional music start asking, hey, what's up with the podcast? But, you know, it's tricky. I'll come across one of these tunes and hear a little anecdote about something to do with it and be like, oh, man, that sounds so interesting. I bet it would make a great episode for the podcast. And I go on the hunt. I start ordering books. or going to these websites and compiling just as much stuff as I can. I usually use like a Microsoft OneNote. I just start dumping things into a file that I open for for the tune or the song. But then, you know, a lot of times it just uh, it peter's out. There's not enough stuff that's out there to to make a full episode. So really what happens is I'll I'll hear something and then I'll end up starting about 10 episodes before I find one that has enough out there to make a full episode. So I've got like a couple tunes that are they're they're almost there if I could just find a little bit more. I could do full episodes on them, but they're not quite there. But every now and then I come across one like this episode today where I'm not really expecting much about it at all. I just really liked this tune and started just Googling, basically. And I was like, whoa, there's so much stuff that's out there about this. And it was a really interesting topic. And the tune for this episode is called St. Kilda Wedding. I first heard it from Alistair Frazier, who's probably one of the people who, who made it popular. And I just thought it was cool because as a beginner, when I first started, I heard all the, the bow triplets or the, uh, the trebles. Or the scrunchies, whatever you want to call them, this little uh, ornamentation that is uh, kind of integral to the tune at the as right as it opens. It's a very like triumphant kind of tune, and so as soon as I heard it, I've I've always kind of loved it. The main artist who popularized this tune, or that I think is most well known for it, is Alistair Fraser. The other artist that popularized this tune was a band named O'Sheen, and they probably actually did it before Alistair Fraser did it. Uh, they were around kind of in the in the 1970s. They released an album titled St. Kilda's Wedding in 1978, and they were pretty influential. So if you're into this kind of music, I would definitely recommend checking them out. Some of their band members went on to join other pretty well-known bands as well, like the Tannehill Weavers. So the musicianship is is pretty high. Something that I find really fun about these these old tunes that have been around for a while, you go back through these old books uh, of tunes, these collections, and a lot of places, the the composer is never listed, or you have to dig for it so far back, you have to keep keep finding, un- unraveling these threads. But a lot of times, who is given credit is the collector, the person who first put it into a, a publication of music for the rest uh, rest of the uh, the folk music players to have. And for this particular one, I, I couldn't find who-, who wrote it, but it was first collected by a guy named Simon Fraser in 1866 in a collection of music titled The Airs and Melodies Peculiar to the Highlands of Scotland and the Isles. I always love the names of these old collections of music. They're always so long and descriptive. When I released my own album about two years ago, I I tried to kind of pay homage to them. I named it a a collection of tunes and songs from Travels Near and Far. So shameless plug, go check that out there. Each collection of music that I looked at, trying to find the, the oldest one that had this tune in it, they all listed it as a different type of tune. Uh, one place had it listed as an air. One was a lament. One was a march. I ha- there was some places that had it as a single reel and a double reel. Uh, so there were some places that had it as a strathspey. I even saw somewhere that that said it was a listening piece. So had a, that one was a new one. I was like, well, kind of isn't like all music uh, a listening piece? But I guess you could say the bottom line is this is one of those tunes that's kind of wide open for interpretation, depending on how stylistically you want to play it. So what's up with Saint Kilda? Well, you know, it's one of these islands like uh, I've talked about several times. I've spoken about the Aran Islands a lot on this uh, podcast before in in Ireland. If you go back and you listen to the the Calum's Road episode, it's about a a place named Rasse, which is one of these islands off of the coast of Scotland. And St. Kilda kind of reminds me of, of that a little bit. It's about 40 miles off the coast of Scotland in the northwest. It's part of the the Outer Hebrides. I think it actually has like the outermost island of the Outer Hebrides. And it's actually got some of the highest cliff sides in all of the United Kingdom. It was one of these places with a really unique culture and a small population that just kind of slowly died off. And I'll get into the reason for that. In 1697, there was a guy named Martin Martin who kind of found this community and he said that, The inhabitants of St. Kilda are much happier than the generality of mankind, as being almost the only people in the world who feel the sweetness of true liberty, simplicity, mutual love, and cordial friendship, free from the solicitous cares and anxious covetousness and the consequences that attend them. So just kind of set you up for the community that we're going to be talking about a little bit. These places, you you always hear these quotes like this, and you kind of romanticize them, and even if you pull up pictures online, the, the island looks absolutely beautiful But then as you kind of start learning about it, the the romanticism kind of dies away a little bit. They had a a lot of disease that was going on there that really impacted the population. And as more and more contact was made with the outside world, people started leaving. They started going to the mainland of Scotland or they went to Australia or Canada. And that kind of started this cycle. You know, There were fewer people there. The community started struggling uh, because everyone kind of had their little role in the community. And then towards the end of the 1920s, they had some some crops fail that was was really devastating. And so by 1930, there was only 36 islanders remaining, and they all moved to the, the mainland of Scotland. And that was kind of it for St. Kilda. There's still quite a bit of structures that are standing on the island. There's a, over a thousand kind of storehouses for food. You can see some of the the cottages that, that were used still. Uh, there was a main street, so they kind of had some commerce going on, but they were forced to be extremely economical with pretty much all the resources that they had. I read one place that said basically St. Kilda was a testament to man's ability to survive in the most hostile of environments. And, you know, you would think, for example, being on an island, they would be fishermen, but the the oceans, the surrounding waters were actually so treacherous that they hardly ate any fish at all. And basically how they survived was birds. They they relied on birds For everything. So not only would they they catch these birds, which were mostly gannets and fulmers, they would use the meat, they would dry it, and they would store it, they would would eat the eggs, they'd use the oil for lamps, and pretty much uh, even on these little structures that exist on the island, they found that they were using some parts of the bird in actually building the structures, like their houses. And they they even use, like, the bones to make uh, sewing needles. They would use the beaks as, as brooch pins, and they'd even take the skins and turn them into shoes. And they did this for thousands of years. There's uh, evidence of uh, Neolithic populations and even a uh, Norse presence, which predated the settlement of, of Gaelic-speaking Scots there. So at least 2,000 years they were living like this. And I feel like the, the downfall or the, the decline of the population there is kind of a tale that I've been seeing over and over again. I've even witnessed it in, in some of my own travels. Basically, there's this isolated community and uh, people discover it by, by traveling there and the word gets out. And next thing you know, there's like cruise ships. There were actually uh, several cruise ships that would frequently go to this place, the SS Donara and the SS Hebrides. And kind of started in 1877, they would just do regular cruises to this place. And then eventually the population started selling things to the people when they when they came on their tours, like sheepskins and tweeds and gloves and scarves. They would even sell the eggs and even these like rare ornithological items that (laughs) were super old. But then it kind of reversed. So where initially they were selling goods to people who were visiting people who were visiting started bringing goods to them and they started buying them and this kind of started this uh reverse economic turn of the island where they started becoming reliant on the mainland and so once that started it was just kind of all downhill from there they people started leaving and going away they were no longer able to be self sufficient they relied on the island on the on the mainland and eventually the the last couple dozen islanders they requested evacuation and now we just kind of have this island that's frozen in time with all this kind of rich history. And it's so bizarre. You know, I've gone to the, these Aran Islands off the coast of Ireland. They have a, a similar kind of thing going on there where there's all these structures that are thousands and thousands of years old. And we have no idea what they were for. You know, we think there were these religious sites, but they're, they're huge. And they were definitely a huge pain to build. And they're in the middle of nowhere on this island. And we almost know nothing about the people that built them. So, like, the history is there. We just don't know it. There's all these uh, interesting anecdotes of these fleeting encounters with the uh, islanders in the mainland. You know, it, initially, I kind of talked so far that it's always been uh, the mainlanders coming to the island. A guy comes across it and makes us like, a great quote that says how awesome the islanders are or... These touring cruise vessels, they come and they drop a bunch of people off. But it definitely went the other way, too. Like in uh, 1876, there was this really bad food shortage there. And so what they did, they took uh, letters and they put them in a wooden container and they surrounded it with a sheep's bladder that made it float. And they threw it into the ocean and basically hoped that the uh, the prevailing currents would take the—they were distress letters— that it would carry the letters to either Scotland or Scandinavia, and this happened again uh, about 30 or 40 years later in 1912. There was a a bunch of food shortages again, and then a year after that, they had a really bad uh, outbreak of influenza. It wasn't necessarily a cutting-edge medical technology, so they, they really suffered from these setbacks. And then there's some interesting ties also between uh, the, the First World War. And this place, it's kind of mill in the nowhere of interest to nobody. But there was a small kind of a naval detachment that was stationed on on the island in Saint Kilda, and they would they would regularly get deliveries of mail and food from naval supply vessels. But after the war, those services they obviously stopped. But the the local people they would kind of had gotten used to receiving those deliveries and and, and being tied into that. And so when it stopped, they kind of got resentful a little bit, or or, or bitter, towards the mainland. And so that kind of impacted how the islands carried on. There's a little bit of irony in it, because the islanders, they got kind of bitter towards the mainlanders. But what happened was, the islanders, they left to join the mainland. So it was like, ah, we're so mad that you, you gave us this help, and then you took it away. But then... If you really examine it, it's like they were so mad that they, they left the island and they went to join the people that they were they were mad at. I'm sure there's more to it than that, but that's just kind of a layman's analysis of the situation. It also speaks to the reach of the First World War because there's essentially this island that's at the edge of the world with a population of about one or two hundred people, and even they couldn't escape being involved in it. What the government did is they put a signal station on the island with a radio tower, and they actually employed some of the islanders to to work there. And I could not believe this when I read it, but a German U-boat actually carried out a bombardment of the island on May 15th in 1918 and caused some damage to to the property. So you have this little island in the middle of nowhere, and it is legitimately involved in conflict with the world war. And so after that, the government put a, uh, they put a gun in placement about six months later to protect the village, but it was put there very late in the war and never actually got used. As for the name, there never was an actual St. Kilda, and there's a bit of conjecture about where the name originated from. It first appeared on a Dutch map in 1666, and there's a commonly held belief that the Dutch misassumed a, a Norse term Suntkelda. Kilda which means sweet well water, to be the name of the island and that it was dedicated to a saint, but there, there was no actual St. Kilda. There's also some ideas that uh, there's just a lot of cartography errors. There's a gentleman named Lucas Wagner in 1592 who kind of transcribed some of the the maps from the different languages that were exploring the area at the time. And because of pronunciation differences with R's and S's and even T's and L's, it just kind of morphed into the this, this St. Kilda name. Initially, it was not even Saint Kilda, it was just annotated as S-Kilda, but some of the languages when they saw S, they they always kind of assumed that Saint came after it. I tried to learn a bit about the, the customs and traditions of the island to see if I could find anything about their, their weddings, but there wasn't really much out there. There was a 20-minute documentary on YouTube that was interviewing people who had lived on the island. They were talking about their day-to-day lives and how they kind of got on, but they didn't really discuss any traditions or ceremonies or anything, so... In my mind, I just think this person who wrote this tune originally, they thought about St. Kilda they knew about it and maybe kind of created a vision in their mind and then either wrote the tune to be what they think uh, St. Kilda Wedding might feel like, or they named it after the fact, like they wrote this tune and then kind of thought about St. Kilda and they said, oh, you know, what if they had a wedding there? And I'll call this tune St. Kilda Wedding. Obviously, complete speculation, but that kind of thing is pretty common when, when naming tunes. Now, with that very long stream-of-conscious presentation on the island of St. Kilda concluded, I will now play for you my rendition of the tune St. Kilda Wedding. So there you go. St. Kilda Wedding. That was one take, but it took me about 15 or 20 tries to actually get it right. Those bowed triplets are no joke. Thank you so much for tuning into the podcast today. I've got some stuff coming up here. Uh, I'm working on a a tune a day project that I should be starting here in about uh, a week or so. So that'll be on YouTube. So go to YouTube, follow there, Instagram, Facebook, please go on there and follow. If you could go and just Leave a, leave a rating on the, the Apple Store or whatever app that you use to listen here and a review would be incredibly, incredibly helpful. I can't stress enough how helpful that kind of stuff is for independent musicians and artists to get that kind of feedback. A lot of us are competing against these big corporations that have the money to do all this advertising and kind of manipulate the algorithms and stuff. So we're kind of like the mom and pop stores competing with the Walmarts and the Targets. So if you want us to stick around, even if you don't like what I'm doing, Do it for the other indie artists that are out there doing stuff that are like me. I'm also playing with the format of the podcast a little bit. If you go back and listen to some of the earlier episodes, it was maybe a a little bit more formal. I'm kind of trying to make it a little bit more casual, stream of conscious, more like a discussion, even though it's obviously one-sided. So let me know if you like that, if you like the old way better. I do hear from listeners on occasion. Uh, They often email me and tell me I got something wrong, and I do make corrections, and I am responsive. And I do want to chat with you. So until I hear from you, be bold. Be kind and safe travels wherever your wandering takes you.